Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello and happy Monday to well, those of you listening on release day. Hopefully I can brighten up your Monday evening and in fact brighten up your day whenever you are listening to this. So today's episode due to popular demand, well uh, four of you I think <laughs> came back to me and said you like the idea of an episode looking at the oldest wineries. So for the four of you, here it is. You're going to learn about the 10 oldest wineries in the world. But of course, I don't want it just to be about wineries. So I've tried to throw in some other wine facts and information. So we're going to focus on Muller-Turgau, the grape variety. So if you don't already know about that, you will do by the end of this episode. And also, I'm going to attempt to break down a little bit more the labelling laws for German wines and also with Chianti what you may see on the labels. Now obviously I am going to start with the oldest winery in the world. We are off to Mosul in Germany and we're talking about a date of 862 AD. So this is 1,160 years of wine history right here. The winery is called Stavelterhof and they have certainly come a long way. From early beginnings when the winery was donated to the monastery of Stavelot, which is where the name Stavelter has come from, to being in the hands of the government and then finally being bought by Peter Schneiders in 1805. And since then, it's been handed down generation by generation. Jan Matthias Klein is the current winemaker and took over in 2005. So he began building on all the amazing Rieslings they were doing. And then from about 2010, started his focus towards all things natural. Now, these wines are grown organically with minimal intervention. And he has a line of wines with zero sulfur. For a winery with such history, the labels are totally funky and rather modern. In fact, you'll see a drawing on the front of one of them that has a wolf. Now, there's a fun story behind this. As you may know, in Mosul, they are known for very steep slopes. It's no different in this property with some vineyards at 60 to 70 degrees incline. So the story or the legend that I've heard is that they used to have a donkey, good old donkey, helping with these steep slopes until one day a wolf, obviously a very bad wolf, came along and ate it. Tough times, the donkey. Well, anyway, the monks working there made the wolf work the slopes as a punishment. So today, they still see the wolf as their mascot. And his name, by the way, is Magnus. There's a Riesling, a Magnus Riesling. Look out for that. And as with natural wines that are good, these are wines of energy, light and vibrant, tangy and textural. He still has some more traditional wines for those of you that are not in the, the glue 
glue glue club. Uh, certainly in London, when you talk with the sommeliers over here, you sense that these wines have got a bit of a cult-like status. And of course, that's because these wines are great, but also because Jan Klein is so forward-thinking with this incredible focus towards supporting other winemakers and the local community. In fact, he's part of a group, oh, can I pronounce it correctly? It's the Der Kleinsiklein Ring project which translates to steep slope riesling rescue team this is a project that's very much about sustainability and it's about saving many of the steepest plots of abandoned riesling vineyards he personally has purchased many of these plots for experimentation and to be able to hand them down to up and coming winemakers so the idea is leaving something good for the future generations now the winery has an incredibly long and interesting history as you've obviously uh, already heard heard and it seems with Jan at the helm equally it has this very same interesting and long future for that reason they are my winery of the week I'm happy to say that you can get your hands on quite a nice array of these wines if you're here in the UK and I hope it's the same for you guys listening around the world so today I have with me one of his very creations it's the Muller Time Sanderstruck 2020, which you can get from Modal Wines for £27. Right, I, I need to tell you about the label here first, okay? This is really colourful, intense, bright colours. There's a guitarist on the front and then a lightning strike and loads of stars. Once you see this label, you're certainly not going to forget it. Now, I could have gone for one of his more conventional wines. I also could have picked a Riesling, but I wanted to try the Muller Turgau, as this is a great variety that I've never mentioned before on any podcast. So, wine education time. I want to pause on the wine for a second to talk about the grape. So, Muller Turgau, it's actually a crossing between... Riesling and Madeleine Royale. So this happened back in 1882 by a Dr. Muller and he was from a town called Turgau in Switzerland. Although the grape is also known as Rivanna and then that's actually caused some arguments. So for quite a long time people thought it was a crossing between Riesling and Silvana, hence the name Rivanna, but that's not true. So to confirm... Riesling crossed with Madeleine Royale. Now, it's a grape that ripens early, much earlier than Riesling, and it doesn't need as much sun. So you can imagine it's a great place to be planted in cooler climates such as Germany. If it's not grown with care, it can suffer with lack of acidity and it can be quite bland. And for that reason, it was very much used as the main grape variety in the very famous, pretty sweet tasting German wine of the 80s, Liebfraumilch. But with lots of hard work, if a winemaker is dedicated, you can produce a wine with some nice citrus aromas, a touch of florals and stone fruits. Good versions can have aromas like muscat even. So, to get to this wine, which I have very high expectations of, in terms of how it's made, 30% of the grapes are destemmed, and it probably comes as no surprise to many of you, as he enjoys making a more natural wine, that there is some skin fermentation for around 17 days, and doing that adds texture and, of course, more intensity. You're able to get more flavour, aromas, colour, everything from the skin. 
But there is also wines fermented in stainless steel tanks as well to keep a more fresh, crisp style too. Okay, I'm going to taste it for you. Uh, now, actually, I was thinking it might be a little bit more orange in the glass, but it's not. You've got this kind of medium to deep lemon colour still, uh, but it's very cloudy. You can see the haziness because it is unfiltered. Almost looks as well. There's a little bit of spritziness, like I can almost see a little bit of bubbles. So let's have a try. Oh, and by the way, with this wine, I've left it out of the fridge for a little while. It's not, I can imagine, this is not the kind of wine that you want at five degrees. You're going to want it a little bit warmer because this is not an overly aromatic wine and definitely going to be about texture. So therefore, a little bit warmer is better. So, okay. This is actually more vibrant than I expected. You've got this mix between floral and herbal even. I get lovely violets and even kind of a slight candied note or, or slightly soapy. It's, it's more aromatic than I expected. There's a, a hint of mint with like bergamot oil. And actually, if you like Earl Grey tea, there's a bit of that going on in there. And in terms of fruits, it's definitely citrusy. So lemon peel. Again, not lemon juice or anything like that. It's got a little bit more of an intensity, maybe a bit more of that kind of grippiness um, on the nose. And there's a bit of like a peach melba vibe going on. So it's got the stone fruits, but maybe some raspberries, something a little red in there as well. Okay, now... For those of you either into natural wine or not into natural wine, it certainly has a little bit of a funk, like a tarty, sour, even a sour cherry note, even though this is a white wine, and that apple cider zing, it is there, but it's surprisingly lively. Now, acidity-wise, it's not that high. Um, it could probably get to medium acidity, but there's like a spiciness to it, a little bit of aniseed or white pepper going on. I have to say, this wine is round, it's soft, it has that lovely texture. And actually, it still feels very light though, because there is a spritz to it. So although the acidity is not so high, there's still a bit of a raciness, like an explosion of fruit and zest. Do you know, this is the kind of wine that is going to evolve in the glass. It is going to evolve as the temperature changes, so I would highly recommend playing around with that. And this is kind of a serious wine. This is a wine that I think you can you can really take your time over and think about and enjoy. Now, although I'm rather enjoying this by itself, in terms of a food pairing... I want to think about the components. So it's quite soft, it's textural, but it's not overly heavy or rich. It's got lots of that citrus vibe and herbs and aromatics. So I'd want to keep things like fresh and lean. So maybe sushi 
would be phenomenal with it or actually going for some vegetables with some mint in so like maybe like a spaghetti with mint and courgette or peas and mint perhaps I mean you could have it with lovely light fish you could have it with chicken I think more about what you would accompany it with so as long as you're squeezing a load of lemon and perhaps you're adding in some oregano basil ginger garlic all these kind of herbs and spices would be absolutely beautiful or in fact alongside a fish or chicken you did lovely like a lemon roasted fennel with some olives hopefully you're getting the vibe I'm going with here right oh wait one more sip mm. delicious let's go on to winery number two so in second place We are heading west and we're off to France, to a winery established in the year 1000. Chateau de Gourlaine is situated in the Loire Valley and impressively still today owned by the Marquis Gourlaine family. They're in Nantes, which is the closest subregion to the coast. And for those of you who love architecture, their castle was the first built in the Loire Valley. And for those of you who love their history, especially British history, the Marquis can trace his family directly back to Mary Queen of Scots. So we are 30 plus generations down the line now. And if you want to try any of their wines, they make a muscadet, which is a fresh, light white wine made around the Nantes area. And the grape variety is Melon de Bourgogne, often just called Melon. So it's a sharp and tangy kind of style, and it definitely reminds you of the sea. Probably why it goes so well with oysters. And for the best examples, look for a Muscadet Sevres Iman, which is the region's best offering equally for more texture to the wine look for the words sir lee on the label and what that means is on the lees so this is when the wine is aged on the lees so the naturally occurring dead yeast cells that are left in contact with the wine and you can get this exact wine from chateau de gorlin in the uk for less than a tenner at Drink Finder. Now, although situated in the west by the coast, they make wines from regions further inland along the Loire. So, Vouvray is a region in the middle Loire within Touraine, and it's this place for Chenin Blanc. In fact, Jancis Robinson said, Vouvray is Chenin Blanc, and to a certain extent, Chenin Blanc is Vouvray. <laughs> to give you an idea, to give you some context here. You're going to find the best and the most expensive Chenin Blancs made here. And you can get still versions, sweet or sparkling. Now, if you want to know more about the grape variety of Chenin Blanc, go back to episode 51 on Cap Classique, as South Africa has taken on Chenin Blanc as the white grape variety of their country. So we go into a little bit more detail there. Now, going back to wines made by Chateau de Gourlaine, they make Sauvignon Blanc, although I'm not sure which region specifically they make theirs, but Sauvignon Blancs tend to start in Touraine, which is where you get some great value Sauvignon Blanc and actually very much like Marlborough New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc style so more of that tropical exotic fruits and then going all the way to the far east where the most prestigious versions of Sauvignon Blanc can be found in Sancerre and Puy Fumé. 
Right now, do you know where we're heading for number three? Well, we're going right back to Germany again. So spoiler alert, Germany features pretty heavily on this list. They've got a good ton of wine history. So let's talk about Schloss Johannesburg, whose history dates back to 1100. Now to give them an introduction, famous wine critic Robert Parker has stated, one of the greatest Riesling terroirs on the planet wine. (laughs) They planted their whole vineyards to just Riesling back in 1720, making them officially the first Riesling winery in the world. Now, you can find them in Rangau. So to give a little context between these German regions, so between these guys and Staffelderhof, who are in the Mosul, so that's the first winery I mentioned, Firstly, the majority of all wine regions are found in the southwest, so close to France. Mosul is the furthest west, touching both Luxembourg and France. It also includes the tributaries Saar and Rouvre, and this is the place with the steepest slopes in the world. They also have slate soils. Now, the wines tend to be more mineral and slaty, (laughs) steely with lots of purity. They are typically lighter. And they have this lovely kind of citrus note alongside a bit of blossom, that floral edge. This is also the region where you're most likely to find the sweetest versions of Riesling. But that doesn't matter. Don't let that put you off because it has racy acidity. So these Rieslings are always in balance, no matter the sweetness. Mosul then meets the Rhine River. And as it stops traveling south and actually runs east to west, that's where you're going to find Rangau, which is typically on more gentle slopes. And it has protection from the Taunus Mountains. Is that the way you pronounce it? Taunus? In the north. Now, Rangau produces Riesling that is richer and riper so with lots of stone fruits and it does still have a very stony minerality compared to say slaty of Mosul. They are definitely the leaders here in drier styles of Riesling. Now back to this very historic winery. They also claim to be the first winery to produce a Spatzleser Riesling. Okay, ready? This is going to be the complicated part. We're going to talk about must levels and the labeling terms on German wine. So actually, this is probably the part where you should download the transcripts so you can see the spellings here. To find it, just go to my show notes and there'll be a link right at the top. So as with France and Italy, to put this into perspective, they have PDOs and PGIs, you know, they stand for protected designations of origins or protected geographical indications. So these are basically quality schemes where producers must follow certain rules. Well, here in Germany, they have the same kind of simple table wines at the bottom. Then they have Qualikatswein. So it's also known on a label, you might just see QBA. The B is in lowercase. And then the highest quality level that we're going to talk about now is the Pradikat system. So known as Qualikatswein mit Pradikat, which basically translates to quality wine with special attributes. Okay, is everyone with me? We're dealing with the Pradikat scheme right now. (laughs) 
To be honest, I sweat even just thinking about talking about German wines. <laughs> okay, so within the Pradekat system, a winemaker has a choice as to when he harvests his grapes. And depending on the ripeness, it will qualify for a specific ripeness level. So, cabinet, if you see this on the label, it has to have, when it's measured, between 67 to 82 Oshla. Now, Oshla is a hydrometer scale which measures the density of a grape must. So that's Oshla, or if it's easy for you to understand, when they weigh it, it could have 148 to 188 grams per litre of sugar, but at harvest time. So this is before they turn the sugar into alcohol, so before fermentation. So that's cabinet, okay? And they can be dry wines, they could be fermented down to dryness, or they could be off dry. Spatzlaser, now this is what started this whole terrible conversation. <laughs> Spatzlaser means late harvest and grapes have to have a sweetness level of 76 to 90 oshla or 172 to 209 grams per liter of sugar at harvest time just to reiterate now with the extra sweetness level in the grapes when picked spat laser wines tend to be richer rounder more full-bodied and they are generally sweeter than cabinet wines now they can be dry to look out for on a label, if you see trocken, that would mean dry, and habtrocken means off dry, so that can be quite useful. Now, when you see auslaser on the label, this means select harvest. So these are going to be sweeter still. So in terms of Oshla, they have to weigh in at 83 to 110, or if we're talking grams per litre of sugar, 191 to 260. So at this point, they will have noble rot, which is basically a, a good fungus, which we want, which um, pierces the grapes and allows them to shrivel, and that concentrates the flavours even more. And of course, the sugar level is therefore going to go up. You can still have a trocken. You can still have a dry wine. This is the last wine in the category that could be dry. But of course, if it is dry, it's going to be the fullest. It's going to be the richest. It's going to be the roundest. Now, going on from there, you can find sweet wines of Berenaus Laser, Trocken Berenaus Laser, and Eisfine. But I think that you'll be happy to know we're going to leave that for another day. <laughs> so basically, um, Schloss Johannesburg accidentally fell on the style of Spatzlaser in harvest time. So what they were doing, they were waiting for official authorization to tell them that they could start the harvest. And for some reason, this authorization came a few weeks late, which meant by this point, the grapes were super, super ripe and even starting to shrivel up. But they picked them anyway, they pressed the grapes and realized that they had created something of superior quality. And so the style, Spatzlaser, was born. But to summarize, Schloss Johannesburg, they are a symbol of Riesling history. And today they are making delicious wines. In fact, anyone who's after a magnum, I've just had a look on Slurp and they're selling their dry Gilblack Riesling for just £35. And they're a pretty good site to get some wines from. You can get a normal 75 CL bottle, their Bronzlack Riesling, which is dry. It says Trocken, that's £23.95. But don't be fooled. 
you can also go crazy and get a stunning bottle for £134 and that's the Goldlack Riesling Trocken. That's 2017 so it's all about sight there, their Goldlack Riesling. So whilst we all plan on getting some bottles of Schloss Johannesburg, let's go on to the fourth oldest winery on the list. So in fact, I'm going to put together number four and number five in the list as they are both in Italy. In fact, in Chianti, Tuscany. Now, both have been instrumental to the development of Chianti. So firstly, in 1140, or 1140, (laughs) however you want to say it, Barone Ricasole was born. Now, since the last baron has taken over, that's the 32nd baron, he has renamed the winery to Ricasoli 1140. Now, located in Gaolle, which is in the southern eastern part of Chianti, this is the biggest estate in Chianti Classico, with over 1,200 hectares of land surrounding it and 240 of those have been planted to vine and it has the most incredible castle the Castillo di Brollio and having been there personally myself I can tell you the architecture is absolutely breathtaking as is the views from the top you climb up through this forest winding and weaving and you go up to about 400 meters above sea level you can watch the sunset and then you can head down to their Osterio de Brolio restaurant and you can eat and drink their wines however I do remember eating outside all beautiful but being bitten like crazy by mosquitoes now I suppose that's not really Riccasoli's fault and the vistas and the wine totally make up for it now if you are in the UK Vinum sells like a whole selection of their wines their Brolio Chianti Classico it's 17 pounds their Casalferro which is 100% Merlot that's at £40. And then they also have the Coledila Chianti Classico Gran Selezione for £54, amongst many others. Now, just a touch on Gran Selezione for a second so you understand what you're getting if you see it on a label. This is the most prestigious, the most premium level for Chianti Classico DOCG wines and it came about in 2014 so you'll be able to find wines with this labeling from the 2010 vintage now with Chianti Classico itself it just has to age for a year so you know expect the lighter juicier fresher red fruits floral notes then with Chianti Classico Reserva it needs to be oak aged for two years and spend three months aging in bottle of course this is going to be a richer wine there's going to be more structure the tannin levels will be higher and of course that vanilla and tobacco notes are going to come in from the oak and then Gran Selezione which accounts for about 8% of the wines, needs to age for two and a half years in oak and then have three months bottle aging before release. So again, with this, imagine it's even bigger again, but a lot more elegant, a little more finesse. Now, all of those three in the categories, they need to be made with 80% Sangiovese, 
in the blend and the rest will be made up of either the local varieties Caniolo and Colorino or international varieties which are becoming more and more popular like Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon. But when it comes to the Grand Seleccione, one, it has to be a state fruit. You can't buy it in. And it has to pass a pretty strict tasting by the Italian tasting boards. So for this specific wine, year on year out, it might not have that Gran Selezione title. So it is vintage variable. Now going back to Ricasoli, Bettino Ricasoli has been credited with creating the original Chianti Classico blend back in the 1800s. So this winery is created many important markers in their history. Then looking at the fifth oldest, although that could be a little bit controversial because Antonori, their winemaking dates back to 1180, just 39 years later than Riccasoli. Now the Antonori family themselves, they agree that the winemaking story really began in 1385. However, their restaurant, Rinuccio, 1180, which is on the rooftop of their like incredibly modern and inspiring winery, is named after their forefather, Renuccio degli Antenori. Now, he was recorded to be making wine from 1180 at the Castello di Cambiate, which was just north of Florence. But then the history gets a little bit blurry and it's in 1385 that Giovanni de Piero Antonori became part of the winemakers guild and so the family dates officially start there now do go to their tasting rooms and winery my gosh if you ever have a chance it's one of the best that I've ever been to so they are located in the north west so in the Val di Pesa region just north of Greve And this winery has these iconic spiral staircases. They have these tasting rooms with like floor to ceiling glass and it hovers over the barrel rooms. There's something really calming. Everything's very dark and it feels historic. And then there's this rooftop that's just covered in grass. And if I remember rightly, there's even vines up there. They, for me, are one of the most well-known names in the world, let alone in Italy. And this was due to the creation of Tignanello, which is now their flagship wine. So this was first created in 1971. This was significant because back then, the Chianti regulations did not allow for any international varieties. And they created this wine that was a blend of 80% Sangiovese, 15% Cabernet Sauvignon and 5% Cabernet Franc. Also, surprisingly, white grape varieties were also expected to be part of a Chianti blend back then. So they completely ignored all the rules and they even aged their wine in new oak barriques, which was another first as Sangiovese was only ever aged in old oak. So to do something like this was incredibly risky and it meant that they had to declassify their wine to just a simple table wine. But this new crazy blend became one of the first Super Tuscans ever made, Sasakaya, was actually the first one, if you want to go and look that one up. And together, they started the Super Tuscan Revolution. So Tegnanello now has become a cult 
wine. It is a real wine collector's wine. You can get a bottle of 2018 from Roberts of Wine if you're looking for one for £135 a bottle. And actually, I could go on and on about Antonoria's. You can have so many wine experiences with them if you go to visit. I stayed in oh, the most beautiful country, like a country house hotel. It had this swimming pool that overlooked the Tignanello vineyards. I hired a bike to do literally a five minute ride up to the Tenuta Tignanello to look around. And oh my gosh, but I do warn you. <laughs> Cycling around Chiante is an experience. So hills upon bends upon hills. So get your practice in before you go. Or just hire a car. Yeah, much simpler. But not as beautiful. Then you have, just going down south a little bit by a few kilometres, their Michelin star restaurant. They have Osteria de Pasignano. And this is surrounded by vines. It's next to an old abbey monastery that dates back to 395. And that's where they have these ancient wine cellars underground and they are aging their Badia Apasignano wine. So this is a wine that gets the Gran Selezione recognition. And you can get a bottle of that from vinum.co.uk at a very reasonable £35 a bottle. Or you can get from them the Peppoli Chianti Classico, that's £16 a bottle. The amazing thing about Antonori, for their fame and the quality that they have, I actually think that they produce really affordable wines. So go and check them out. Okay, so I rambled on too much (laughs) about the first five. So we're just going to do a countdown for the last five. And then, you know, you can have a look and investigate yourself. Or perhaps, maybe I'll do a part two. Let me know if more than four of you (laughs) request a part two, I shall do so. But in sixth place for oldest winery, goes back to Germany and we're talking the Rheingau region. This is a winery called Schloss Wollrads. In 1211 they were established. Back to Tuscany in Italy in the year 1308 Frescobaldi started. Then we hop back over to Germany but to the Mosel region. In 1335 you have the winery Kartosahof starting. Then We finished the last two on the list in Spain. Both of them are in the Penedes region next to Barcelona. In 1548, the winery Can Bonastre was established. And then in 1551, Cordonou, the famous carver producer, was established. So there you have it. The 10 oldest wineries in the world. Opening up a bottle of wine always has a story and it's so exciting to get to know what's in that bottle, that vintage, what the winemaker was thinking. But even more exciting when you're pouring a glass of wine and thinking about how long their history dates back to and especially if they've been so significant in changing what we drink today. So I hope that's got you motivated to maybe go out and discover some of these wines if you didn't know about them already. Now, to finish off with, I leave you with a quote, as always. And this one is by Clifton Fadiman, who was an American editor, writer, and an anthropologist. And he says, To take wine into our mouths 
is to savour a droplet of the river of human history. So there you have it. Next time you pour a glass, don't just sniff and sip, but actually stop and think about where it came from and where did it all start? Thank you, as always, for listening. If you have not shared this podcast with a wine-loving friend, please do it now. Like the podcast, save, subscribe. If you can leave a comment, that's even better. And especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And next week, I have a fantastic chat with Natalie McLean, who is an award-winning writer of several books. So she's going to be talking about those books, wine experiences, bringing you wine tips, amazing cheese and wine pairings. There's so much stuffed into that episode. So make sure you join us again next week. Until then, cheers to you.